chapter 23. Genesis chapter 23. We've been studying the middle section of the book of Genesis. Those of you that have been here for some time will remember that I've tried to approach Genesis in three different sermon series. First of all, chapters 1 through 11, looking at the foundation of the world and where all of that came from. But then now we're in the middle section, looking at chapters 12 through 36, which highlight the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are the patriarchs of Israel. And I know that is just the greatest way a preacher could ever grab your attention at the beginning of a sermon, to tell you that we're studying the lives of three men who've been dead for thousands of years, who were the patriarchs of a nation that we are not a part of. But my friends, I want you to understand, and I hope that you have seen to this point, that this is anything but a dry and dusty record of historical events thousands of years ago in a world that no longer exists. What we find in this record is our own spiritual heritage. We find our own spiritual roots tracing all the way back to the beginning. Because the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. And the plan of salvation that God has now began way back then. And so this is our spiritual heritage. And that is exactly what the book of Genesis is doing. It is teaching us the important truths of where this world came from and where our faith has come from. By looking at the lives of these individuals who lived some 4,000 years ago, we learn something about where we have come from. And we learn something about how the world works. And we learn something about who God is and what He is doing in the world. And we learn something about how to walk by faith as we are called to walk. Of utmost importance as we look at these passages of Scripture, as we look at these lives of faithful men and women, we learn about God. We learn about who He is, what He is like, and what He is doing. What He is up to in the world. Why He leads the way He does. So as we look at the life of Abraham, what we need to see above all else is not primarily Abraham, but the God of Abraham. To see what He is like, to see what he has done in the past, to see what he is doing now, to move all history along to the fulfillment of his salvation plan. So the goal in studying the life of Abraham, as I've said many times before, is not for us to look at Abraham and say, wow, what a great guy, be like Abraham. The goal of looking at the life of Abraham is to get to know Abraham's God. And to learn who he is, to learn what he thinks, and then to learn what he is doing in the world. And then, 
Once we get there, then we will be able to understand how true faith works and how we as believers in God can walk by faith. That is the goal. So two weeks ago, we were in Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, we saw the greatest trial, the greatest challenge of Abraham's life. We saw that moment that he thought he was going to have to sacrifice his only son on the altar in an act of worship to God. And what we learned about God in that chapter is that his leadership is perplexing. That wasn't intended to be the main point of the sermon that day. That was only the starting point, but I have found among several of you that that's a point that really stuck, and you found some encouragement there, knowing that God does lead us in ways that we don't always understand, and that the stability of our faith is not found in understanding all of God's ways, but in trusting His character and His promises and His plan. And those were the other three points that we looked at in Genesis 22. And what we saw there serves as a very important foundation as we now turn our attention to Genesis 23. And we see Abraham now not dealing with the greatest trial of his life, but now also de now dealing with the greatest sorrow of his life. The death of his beloved wife, Sarah. So look at the text with me and follow along as I read Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. 
So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with, with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. There's a lot of repetition there, particularly about where this took place, where the field was, and all of that, and that's important, as we'll see in a few moments. But after such a great climactic passage as Genesis 22, where there is this great triumph of faith, where Abraham willfully lays everything in this life down at the throne of God in submission to him and for his service, it might be hard to think that there would be anything of value in a chapter like this one that seems so mundane. At first glance, this is a chapter that is dominated by the reality of death. And then it chronicles the bargaining details for a piece of property. But we know better than that to think that this is just a throwaway portion of Scripture. We know what we've been taught, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. And that includes Genesis 23 just as much as it does Genesis 22. And indeed, as we take a closer look at this passage, we will find yet another wave of encouraging instruction about who God is and about what it means to walk by faith before Him in this world. And so, yes, the shadow of death hangs over this passage as Abraham reaches an all-too-common milestone in his life, the death of a loved one. It's an issue we don't like to talk about very much. It's very uncomfortable. But it serves as the basis for showing how a mindset of faith responds in times of grief like this. But this passage is not just about the death of Sarah and the grief that Abraham faces because of it. In fact, that aspect takes up a very small piece of this story. The greater weight of this story is given to uh, the, the purchase of the land. And what we are meant to see here is what is going on in Abraham's mind as he responds to the death of his wife and then as he purchases this land. The occasion of Sarah's death brings out in Abraham the reality, a reminder of the fact that he is a pilgrim in the land. And then we see the first purchase of a piece of property in this land that God had promised to him. It's sort of a, a down payment on the promised possession for Abraham's descendants. And it is yet another step forward in the fulfillment of his promise to his people. And in all of those points, I think we can see some connection to ourselves, to our own situation today. I think we can learn important lessons about how we are to live in this world. 
as we are reminded that we are made for the world to come. I want us to consider just a few simple uh, points, stages in the story that will help us to work our way through learning the lessons here. I want us to consider, first of all, the common or the experience of common sorrow. We'll begin there, but then we'll move on to the reminder of pilgrim status, something we all need to remember. And then with that in mind, we'll look finally at the confidence of promised possession. Let's consider, first of all, the experience of common sorrow. The experience of common sorrow. We see this in verses 1 and 2. And I realize, and I want to be careful here, I I realize that the death of a loved one is anything but common to the ones who experience it. So when I say that this is a common sorrow, I am not minimizing the sorrow. What I am saying is that it is a sorrow that is common to all. We all face this. We all go through this at some time or another in the loss, the death of a loved one, and we all experience that grief. And this is a contrast to the unusual, to the uncommon experience Abraham had in chapter 22. We don't all go through that. At least not the way he did. But this sorrow in chapter 23 is common to all of us. It is a common human experience. So look at verses 1 and 2. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah. And then she died. Now in some respects, this is still an uncommon death. We don't know too many people who have lived to the age of 127. That's unusual. And Sarah is still an unusual person. Scripture gives her a certain level, a special level of honor and respect. She is an unusual woman who had been set apart for a particular service, and she was honored that way. Hebrews 11 honors her that way. 1 Peter 3 honors her that way. Nevertheless, the experience of death is the same as it is for everyone else. The grief of death is the same for Abraham as it is for everyone else. Why do I mention that? Because it helps us to remember that even the greatest of human figures, the greatest of spiritual heroes like Abraham and Sarah, are still regular human beings. And it doesn't matter how greatly you have been set apart by God or how great the task is He's called you to or whatever you've achieved in this world. This is a common experience. You are not above experiencing the common griefs and sorrows that come with life in this world. Just because we've been saved by God just because we've been made into a new creation in Christ, just because we have received eternal life through Christ and have that promised inheritance in in the future land does not mean that we will not experience the trials and the griefs of this life. Scripture acknowledges this through and through. The Apostle Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 4, to give comfort to believers who are suffering 
under the weight of persecution, another common sorrow that we ought to expect. He writes this in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when the common sorrows become your sorrows as if it were something strange. It is common. It is normal. Understand, the Lord knows this is going to happen. And the Apostle Paul writes to give encouragement to grieving Christians who had lost loved ones and were now in the throes of that grief. He writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And here we begin to see the difference between God's people and everyone else. It's not that everyone else grieves and God's people don't. It's not that everyone else has trials and God's people don't. That's not the difference here. The difference is that if we are in Christ, if we are God's people, we bear that grief, we endure that grief, we have a strong and sustaining hope, a sure and secure hope in Christ. It's not that they suffer and we don't. It's that we suffer with hope. We grieve with hope. And so in verse 2, Abraham goes in and he mourns and he weeps for his beloved wife. And it is right that he do so. Don't get into the habit or the, the trap of thinking that because you have an eternal hope, that life in this world is all smiles and you ought to just act that way. There is a time to grieve. And it is good to grieve. And when we see you grieve in a godly way, it strengthens our faith too, just as it strengthens yours. Abraham is right to grieve over the death of his wife. They had been married most likely for over a hundred years. Think about that. A hundred years. I've been married 16. That ain't nothing compared to a hundred years. What happened in that hundred years? Here, Sarah is 127 years old, which means Abraham's around 137 years old. Together, they had trusted and followed and obeyed the Lord for over 60 years. With all of its ups and downs, with all of their triumphs and all of their failures in faith, all of their challenges, their marriage survived Abraham twice giving her up to another man on the premise that she was his sister. Wow! It's an aspect of faith we don't often think about, is it? Their failures and their triumphs, their, their trials, their experiences together would have only bound them together more tightly after a hundred years of marriage. And so this moment was a moment of great grief for Abraham, but it was not a hopeless moment. It was not a moment of despair. It never is for God's people. Grief, yes. Hopelessness, no. Our sorrows can often be beyond description and beyond what we think we can bear. But we don't bear them as those who have no hope. There is a particular hope. There is a particular grace. There is a particular faith. 
that God gives to his people that enables them to bear up under the sufferings of this life and to endure them with grace. And if you feel that you are in the midst of that grief right now and your head is not above water and you are being consumed by your griefs and your trials and your sorrows, then I would beg you today, reach out and tell somebody here. Because God intends for you to bear up under that trial and endure it. I know it's hard. But God intends for you to have the strength to bear with it and he will give it to you. Let us help. That brings us to our second consideration this morning. Not just the experience of common sorrow, but what comes with it is often the reminder of pilgrim status. We see this in verses 3 through 6. Abraham rightfully mourns and weeps over the death of his wife, but then what else does he do? How does this experience affect his thinking, and his outlook on life. Well, look at verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Now there's some debate about who these Hittites were. Because Scripture seems to use this term to describe at least three different groups of people, some of whom didn't live in that area, some of whom wouldn't come around until later. So there is some debate here about who exactly this was, but I'm really not worried about solving that issue here because I think it's sufficient to say in this context the Hittites are the inhabitants of the land, right there, right where he was. We see that throughout this passage. This is the area known as Hebron in the land of Canaan. We'll come back to that in a moment. Hebron in the land of Canaan. But what is important to notice here is that there are two different descriptive uh, descriptive analogies used for Abraham in this passage. One given by the people of the land, one given by Abraham himself. The people of the land in verse 6 call Abraham a prince of God among us. That was their view of Abraham. I doubt that that was any sort of confession of faith in the one true God. Maybe for some of them it was. I don't know, but I doubt it. I do think that what they're saying here is a recognition of the blessing that rested upon Abraham, specifically in regard to his great wealth and his influence in that area, in the land of Canaan. Remember that he was already fairly wealthy back in chapter 12 when he moved into the land to begin with. And then shortly after that, his wealth increased greatly by the hands of Pharaoh and others in, uh, in and around the land. Now, not only that, but I imagine he had some good business practices throughout his however many years that he was living there and doing business. But in addition to that, in addition to this lifetime of built-up wealth, there was also a lifetime of positive influence in the area. My mind immediately goes back to chapter 14, back to that unbelievable military encounter where 
uh, a coalition of five kings comes through and just ravages the land, and Abraham musters up his own servants and goes after them and brings everything back. You don't think that would go down in the legendary chronicles of, of the land of Canaan? Abraham, by God's grace, had long been a blessing to the land and had a good reputation as a man of means and influence. He would appear to be at peace and at rest right where he was. But look at how Abraham describes himself in verse 4. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. While the people of the land respected Abraham as a man of means and influence, none of that seemed to move Abraham. After all these years, he still sees himself as a temporary resident in the land, not truly at home, not truly at rest. He still knows that he does not entirely belong that he is not truly assimilated into that society. And the death of Sarah only brings that into clearer focus. Was it C.S. Lewis who said, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then it must mean that I've been created for a different world. And it seems that the sorrows, the common sorrows that we experience in life seem to keep before us the reality that this world can never truly satisfy us, that we are truly just pilgrims passing through. That's what Abraham is coming to realize here as he sees that the griefs of this world do not compare to the promises that God has made. And that is going to direct everything he does from here on out. That in the midst of the sorrow, he is going to act in accord with the reality of God's promises to him. After all these years, after all that he has accomplished, and after all that he has acquired in this world, Abraham still maintains the status of a sojourner, a foreigner, that is, a pilgrim, just traveling through toward his permanent home. And this is where Abraham's mindset finds a good connecting point to the rest of us today. Because Scripture uses very similar language to describe all of God's people in relation to this world. God wrote the pilgrim status into the very law of Israel in Leviticus chapter 25. He says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, and, and here's the point, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. King David goes on later to express the pilgrim mindset poetically when he writes in Psalm 39, 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. That's the mentality. The Apostle Peter uses the political and national exile of Christians in the first century to teach them and to teach by inspiration of God us as well to teach about our pilgrim relationship to the world. And so he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is, you might be cast out by the world. You might not belong among the world and its nations, but you belong to God. Therefore, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Hebrews chapter 11 summarizes this pilgrim mentality throughout the ages by giving a record of God's faithful people and then concluding this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Had they had their eyes on their earthly homes, they could have returned there, just like Abraham could have gone back to Ur of the Chaldeans, but he didn't. Why? Because he had his eyes on the promise of God, and he knew whatever level of fulfillment I see in my life, I know it is coming, and I'm going to live in light of it. There can be no mistaking it, not just for Abraham, but just like him. All who have been saved by God, who believe or who belong to him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are pilgrims in this world. Christians, we need to understand that. We are pilgrims in this world. Hold your finger here and turn over with me to Philippians chapter 3. I want us to get a glance at this chapter together. Philippians chapter 3. Down in verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his conclusion of the matter. But that conclusion is what enables Paul earlier to say confidently and joyfully that he renounces all of his earthly achievements because they have no lasting benefit. Look back at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He knows what His inheritance is. But verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me, has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, he says. That's the mentality Abraham demonstrates in this chapter. That's the mentality that must mark everyone who claims the name of Christ. This world is not all there is. Praise God for that, right? This world is not all there is. This is not our best life. And beloved, do not listen to any preacher who tells you it is. This is not our ultimate home. We are, as it were, travelers living temporarily in a foreign land, and we must live that way. We have a greater citizenship than anything in this world. It is a perfect citizenship, located in a perfect dwelling place that will last perfectly forever. This is the mindset that must drive how we live in this present world. Now, hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that this means total disengagement from the world. I think that would be a sin too, because we are called to make disciples here. We are called to be engaged in the world for the good of those around us, especially for the purpose of the gospel. But this does mean that there will, there will be a certain detachment from this world. There will be a certain sense in which we don't feel like this is all there is. We don't feel that we are entirely at home here. There will be a certain frustration at the events of the world around us. There will be a certain angst at how little we're able to control our lives and seeing the evil of things that we can't control. And there is going to be a sense in us that says, if, if only things would be better, because there is built into us a longing for that which is perfect that is to come. This is why the scripture warns us of the danger of wealth and influence in this world, because they so easily keep us too attached. Those things can be good, and they can be used for great and important things. So I'm not saying that it's wrong to have wealth and influence. In fact, if we have them, they are from God, and we ought to use them accordingly. But the point is, whatever we have and whatever we achieve, we must hold it with a pilgrim mindset, ready to let it go at a moment's notice and be on our way to our great inheritance. Now, there are few things in this world that will bring us back into a right pilgrim mindset than the loss or the death of a loved one, of something or someone that we love so dearly. That's what's happened in this chapter. It serves as a reminder that life is a vapor, that this world is not our home, and that the best is yet to come. And that brings us to our third consideration now, looking at verses 6 to the end of the chapter. And considering now the confidence of promised possession. 
Now again, the, the reality of Abraham's life and mindset is a picture of what should be true for all who follow God. That we are pilgrims in this world and we must live accordingly. And in these verses, we see the transaction between Abraham and the people of the land to purchase a burial site for his deceased wife. It may not sound interesting or significant, but there's some good stuff here, and I hope I can help you see it. In verse 4, Abraham makes a request of the people of the land. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. It's interesting, isn't it? For all the wealth and all the influence that he has, he still doesn't own a piece of property, not a piece of land. He's never gotten to that point. But that is about to change. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about this transaction between uh, these people, um, between the people of the land, between specifically Ephron, the son of Zohar. It appears that in order for a sojourner like Abraham to <clears throat> purchase land in a place like that, he had to get permission from the leaders of the city or something like that. So that's what Abraham seeks. He goes into the city. He's at the gate of the city, we see in verse 10. He has this discussion. There seems to be a great mutual respect among the people, between Abraham and the, and the people of the land. And the people of the land initially offer, take your pick, bury her where you want. None of us will, will hold our land back from you. So Abraham singles out a man named Ephron. And he says, I'd like the cave that is in his field to bury my wife there. Notice he doesn't ask for the field. He asks for the cave. That's it. In verse 11, Ephron responds with what seems to be great generosity, offering to give Abraham not just the cave, but the whole field. And he offers to give it to him free of charge. Now, I'm not convinced that this was as much of an act of generosity as we might think or as it might look at first glance. I, I, some think that Ephron was angling for some sort of benefit of getting, giving up the land or something like that. I'm not sure exactly what it was. But if he really meant to give this land away for free, I don't think he would have dropped the price into the conversation just a moment later. But nevertheless, Abraham accepts the offer of the cave and the land, but he insists on paying for it. And so as they talk back and forth, Ephron eventually casually slips in his asking price, 400 shekels of silver. Now that doesn't mean anything to you, because we don't know what 400 shekels of silver really is. They didn't really have coins at this point, uh, but what they did is this, was, this wasn't a coinage, this was a weight. And I've heard it estimated that 400 shekels of silver amounted somewhat to about 40 years worth of yearly wages for a common worker. This was a huge asking price. This wasn't a deal. What's going on here? Is Ephron taking Abraham for a ride? Is he trying to cheat him? Is Abraham in agreeing to pay this? Being a foolish businessman? What's going on here? Well, I don't think it's either one of those. I suspect Ephron was throwing out a high price, as the rest of us would do if we were listing our house, expecting to talk down. Maybe that's what's going on. 
But from Abraham's perspective, here's what I think is going on. Abraham knows that if he haggles over a price and buys low, that there's a point in the future where somebody's going to challenge that, and he may not be able to give this land on in perpetuity to his descendants. What's more, Abraham is not attached to this world by his wealth. There's something bigger going on here. What happens in this transaction is that Abraham secures with a high price possession of this piece of land for more than just a burial place, but also for a possession that will endure throughout all generations. It's an early picture of a concept most of us are familiar with, a promised possession purchased for the people of God at an incredibly high price. Furthermore, this transaction reveals that Abraham was not attached to this world, but he had the mindset of a pilgrim, and he was content with the possessions that God gave him, even if they still belonged in the future. As a pilgrim who is resting his hopes on the promise of God and the future fulfillment, Abraham demonstrated for us what we all need to get, that there is no need to scrape and to fight to gain the things of this world because our possession is secure. We spend so much time wishing we had the wealth of our neighbor. We spend so much time wishing we, we could just get to the next stage of security. And pursuing security is fine. Pursuing wealth to pass on to our children is fine. But at what cost, beloved? At the cost of remembering that our ultimate treasure is in heaven? So here, with this transaction in place, the first piece of property has been acquired in the promised land for Abraham and his descendants. Don't miss the significance of this. Notice how many times the text emphasizes the word land or property or possession. 17 times in 20 verses. And notice also that this passage is bookended at the beginning in verse 2, at the end in verse 19, with this phrase, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Reminding us, this is the promised land that he is beginning to possess. That's a key part of this chapter. Land has been acquired. To this point, Abraham had seen the blessing that God had promised. He had now seen the son that God had promised. But now, he also sees the land that God had promised. And in spite of the passing of years and the griefs of human experience, God's plan continues to move along just the way God means it to move along. And not only would Sarah be buried in this cave, but so would Abraham. And not only Abraham, but also Isaac, and also Jacob, and also Joseph. Joseph, in fact, would die in Egypt. And when the Israelites were rescued from Egypt and came in to possess the promised land, then he would be buried there. We're talking generations and generations later. It's amazing. God has kept his promise against all odds. And he continues to keep his promise against all odds. Sarah's tomb serves, if you will, as a down payment on Israel's promised possession 
And that is significant to us. To us who are Christians, who are in Christ Jesus today. Because we have a promised possession. And the tomb of Jesus Christ is the down payment on that promised possession. That there is a promise that has been given to us. It's not a physical piece of property in this world. It is a, it's a piece of property in the world that is to come. The new heavens and the new earth. God has made a promise. A promised possession. A future inheritance. An eternal home that has been secured for us in Christ. Through his life through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, and soon through his return. You see, just like Abraham, we have no need to be attached to the things of this world because we have a much greater possession in the world that is to come. And we read of that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting And that idea is not just that we're waiting mindlessly, but we are here, we are positioned and ready, and we are anticipating that moment when we see this. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You want to see a picture of that new heavens and new earth? Look over at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Beloved, that's our eternal home. And you want to tell me that it's worth a lick you investing any bit of your treasures in your security here? None of that lasts. And if these things are true, then how should we live? How should we live? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us we ought to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our eyes must be fixed on him above all else. Jesus tells us to give our lives to the work of God while we are still here. Work, because there is coming a time when the work will be done, he says in John chapter 9. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, don't love the world or the things in the world, because the world is passing away and all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So don't be attached to to this world, but rather, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for your treasures on earth. Why? Because all sorts of things are going to destroy that. It will not last. But what are we to do? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's your treasure? Where's your heart? So I want us, just by way of conclusion, to ask two simple questions. 
Two simple questions. First of all, are you bound for the promised land? Are you bound for the promised land? I don't mean Canaan. I mean your heavenly home. Are you set to receive the promised inheritance of eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth that has been promised by God to all of his people? Does that inheritance belong to you? This promise and this inheritance does not belong to everybody. It belongs only to those who have received God's gift of salvation from sin by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You see, there are only two kinds of people in the world. How's that for intersectionality? There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in sin, who will perish with this world under God's judgment, and those who are in Christ and who will live forever in the perfect world to come. That's it. The first group is bound for eternal damnation. The second group is bound for the promised land. Which one are you? Second question. Are you living in this world with a pilgrim mindset? Are you living in this world with a pilgrim mindset? Christians, there is nothing more valuable than your promised heavenly inheritance. Do not lay up your treasures here at the expense of your treasure there. Keep your eyes on the right prize. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ your Savior in all things. Don't be distracted by the sins and the entanglements and the pursuits of this world. Seek Christ. Live to please Christ. Not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. Not just with your words, but with your wealth, with your influence, with your time, with your energy. Seek Christ. Live to please Christ. And prepare in all things to see Christ. Invest your treasure. Invest your life in Him and in His glorious promise to you. Let's pray.